University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. The collaborative work of David Bowie and Queen gave us one of the smoothest songs to ever resound in our ears. The song is Under Pressure. Now, unfortunately, we can't play it because YouTube and Facebook's algorithms would shut down our live stream. But if you recall, and maybe just tag this to watch later on, the combination of the thumping bass along with the two greatest vocalists of all time are harmonizing with profound bliss. And the lyrics go, pressure, pushing down on me, pressing down on you, no man asked for it. Under pressure that burns a building down that splits a family in two and puts people on the streets. Anyone out there maybe want to take a vote that that could be our theme song right now? Under pressure. Life is full of pressure, of sickness, infertility, of marriages torn apart, of depression and anxiety and suffering and anguish and job loss and, and trials against our character and reputation and people simply being crappy to us, the tragic and unexpected death of people, of injustice and on and on. And then you compound all of this with COVID-19. It's not just the sickness of the virus that many are dealing with, but the disruption to our lives, to the economic impact, to the anxiety of uncertainty. So it feels like we are under pressure. You know, the Bible talks a lot about being under pressure. In fact, if we were to take a step back, it could be one of the primary themes of the entire 66 book uh, that we have from creation to conclusion, from Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Israel and Hannah and David and Ruth and Esther and Isaiah and Jesus and the church. And there's a passage from the letter of James that comes to mind. James chapter 1, verse 2 reads, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. See, as we look at the pressure in our lives and gaze at the speechless of the overwhelming calamity in our world, the words of James, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, doesn't seem like the description of how we feel in the midst of suffering and hurt. Consider it pure joy. James has a, a sick way of looking at life. And James isn't going to be uh, winning the New Testament writer popularity contest among any of us right now. But before we crucify James for his words, he's merely just giving commentary to what Jesus said. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit, those being persecuted and insulted, insulted and slandered, those who are hungry. And Jesus said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were What's up, James and Jesus? Suffering isn't a joy. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say for all of us that this isn't the gospel that we want. Because the gospel we really want looks more like this. Okay, minus that glorious mullet that man has on his head. And if we're honest, we want wealth and health and success gospel.
we want it, and when we that's what makes popular preachers and charismatic messages so easy, so popular. The books, the TV programs, they're so successful. It's the mentality that God desires to give God's followers to acquire financial riches, expenses of vibrant health and life of comfort. Name it and claim it is their mantra. And the number of goodies that God disposes to us, a lucrative job, an increase in a bank account, or even physical healing depends entirely on our faith. Faith is the currency of heaven, these preachers will claim. It gets God on the move. God works on our behalf. But James doesn't give the gospel we want. In reality, he gives the reality that we're facing. Because trials have, are, and will be coming. We forget that James is writing to a group of people who chose to follow a rabbi from a no-name town of Nazareth who started this uprising, who was crucified, and his followers claimed that he resurrected from the dead. And it wasn't easy for the first generation of those who followed Jesus, especially those who came from the Jewish faith. You see, they were ridiculed, and ridicule turned into abandonment from their family and from their community. Abandonment quickly turned into aggravated assault, and aggravated assault quickly turned into systematic persecution. So remember, James is not writing to a bunch of Americans sitting in comfort. He's writing to a people who are scattered and scared and hurting. And he says, trials are coming, but you should take joy in these trials. The great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright remarks, the moment you decide to follow Jesus is the moment you expect trials and tribulations to begin. It's a bit like opening the back door to set off on a walk and finding that the wind nearly pushes you back inside before you even started. You see, the reason that we struggle, and I struggle with passages like this, to take joy into perspective in our trials is because it's hitting at one of the major holes in our theology. That being, I'm good with God until crappy things start to happen in my life. And then God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, maybe even God doesn't exist. It's a hole in our theology because when trials strike, it typically turns us to a testing of our faith, more of a testing of God's existence and God's love for us. The questions to turn, where is God in the midst of our suffering? Why would God let this happen if God were so loving then? But James continues in verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Experts have predicted that crash test dummies have literally prevented millions of car-related deaths. And, and no, The, uh, the mm song, well, of course, we can't play it now, but you know, you're cue to watch it later on. You see, with the number of rides of automobiles on the road, the number of auto-related deaths per year, the federal government began to put a lot of energy behind uh, safety regulations in cars. So they started to test cars with cadavers, meaning they put dead bodies in cars and then intentionally crashed them to see what happened to the human body. This quickly evolved into volunteers signing up to crash tests. Then large animals were put in cars until they developed this thing called the crash test dummy. 
Now, technology has definitely advanced and these uh, wooden figures were first tested in. You see, a new test dummy costs somewhere around a half a million dollars and it's filled with all these data sensors that tell us immediately what happens to the human body upon accidents. What a small price to pay for saving so many lives. You see, for many of us, this is the faith that we want when it comes to being tested. We want some other dummy to experience pain and suffering so that we can just learn from their trials of what and how we get through these things. But what James seems to be saying is that faith is experiential. It's not theoretical. Faith is, is not just about believing in something, but it's, it's been when we experience the manifestation of our faith. If, if faith is given the opportunity to, to be experienced, to be played out. And Paul tries to argue this in his point to uh, Timothy in his second letter. He says, in fact, if you live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. Or as Eugene Peterson translated, anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. There's no getting around it. You see, the semantics of our text from James about faith being proven, experience upon, genuine, all this it's the purpose of a trial or testing of our faith. It, James is saying that trials are coming. And when they do, this will be the true colors of your faith. They're proven and seen either as false or genuine. This is the calamity that will be proven as we hold fast to God in our life and journey through what could be a religious facade. Faith is experiential. It's not theoretical. See, for Madison... On her first birthday, our oldest daughter, um, she was given a radio flyer tricycle. And being the kind of uh, father I am, I had all these memories of my big wheels growing up. Uh, I don't know if anybody had a big wheel. I had, we had a Rambo big wheel that we rode everywhere around our house. So I wanted Madison to experience the same thing. So but we put her down on the tricycle, and she wouldn't pedal. All she would do is just sit there and allow you to push her around. So for her third birthday, my parents bought her a bicycle with training wheels. So we put her on the bike, and that little girl would not pedal. So we get down in this awkward position, and we would physically try to move her feet to simulate and show her what it would look like to pedal. But yet all she wanted to do was just sit there and let us push her around. Eventually, she had to make the decision to move. And eventually, we had to take the training wheels off the bike and give it a go. You see, what happens when our faith is forced out of a theoretical faith and into an experiential one? Because that's what happens when things don't go the way that we want or thought or dreamed they would. It's easy to claim we have faith in God, but what happens when faith moves from theoretical to experiential? What happens when it actually gets tough? What happens when things don't go the way that we want, when we want them, and how we want them? Do you remember the band Ramones, their classic song, I Don't Want to Grow Up? Um, I actually believe that this punk rock band would tell me that I should stick it to the man and play a clip from their song, but again, I don't want Facebook and YouTube to, to shut down the live stream. So as the lyrics go, when I'm lying down in my bed at night, I don't want to grow up. Nothing ever seems to be going outright. I don't want to grow up. Okay, so at least you can take one thing away from the sermon today, is that your pastor actually has a, a great taste in music. But I, I'm in with the Ramones. If, if this is what it means to grow up, then I don't want to grow up. 
Or as the great Kurt Vonnegut wrote, maturity is a bitter disappointment for which no remedy exists unless laughter could be said to be a remedy for anything. You see, the purpose of our text is not to say that if you haven't faced difficulty, then you don't have real faith. That's not what and give a greater vision to a group of people facing trials by saying that this really stinks, but something great is going to come out of this. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Maturation is... is not about growing up, but instead understanding in a, a deeper and more profound sense of what God is doing in our lives. Now, as difficulty, as suffering, as all kinds of trials come slamming down into your life and mine, we must recognize that, that God is going to use this to better us, to refine us, to create genuine maturity within us. And this is the thing about maturity Maturation must be tangibly evident. This is a major shift in our theology and the way that we see what's happening in our world. Instead of asking where God is in the process with us in all of this. Cosmic being distant far off on some throne, but God is present in our lives, working within us, developing us, encouraging us to move forward in our faith to prove and produce perfect faith, as James writes. Maybe the best biblical example that can come to mind is the story of Joseph. I'm sure you remember this guy. He had this dream that his family would fall under his power, and he didn't handle the explanation of that dream in the best way. It didn't help that his father then gave him a coat representing that he was in charge of all of his brothers and their estate. And out of jealous Jealousy and rage, his brothers decide they're going to kill him, but actually what they choose to do is then sell him into slavery. That's a great way to get back at your little brother, I guess. But from slavery, he was put into the house of Potiphar, and he became trusted manager in Potiphar's house. But then Potiphar's wife started to notice Joseph, and she wanted to sleep with him. And when Joseph resisted, she claimed to her husband that Joseph tried to rape her. And so he's thrown into prison, and from prison he becomes a slave in Pharaoh's house. He worked his way up to become the chief cupbearer, and eventually he becomes second in command of Egypt. But what's interesting is that throughout the story of Joseph, there's this underlining theme that repeats again and again, for God was with Joseph. In the dreams that he would become head of his house, in the rage-filled mob of his brothers, in the chains of slavery, in the prison, in his success, God was with Joseph. In fact, many years later, eventually Joseph's brothers scripture, and he says this, and then here, but it was God. That's wisdom character, that's maturity happening in his life and to see the greater circumstances at work. 
And whether your theology will allow you to believe that God is not causing all this calamity and chaos in our world or not, what James is trying to teach us is that God is going to be present with us. God is present with us. The text wraps up here in verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Lacking? Ask God and believe God is going to give. Sounds easy, right? Why does it seem just as difficult to believe and to live into James' opening statements about pure joy and suffering as it did about this statement. And what do we need to ask for right now? Money? A stable relationship? A job? A cute little puppy? Consider, what do you need when you're experiencing difficulty? What do you think you need? What do you need right now in this crisis? James says that what we need when we are facing difficulty, trials of many kind, is wisdom and understanding. Okay, so what does that mean? In Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, there's an epic scene that takes place on the planet of Dagobah where young Luke Skywalker has ventured in and is being trained by Master Yoda. And as they go deeper and deeper into their training, Yoda brings Luke to the place where his X-Wing crash-landed and stuck in the swamp. And Yoda instructs Luke to use the force to lift the X-Wing out of the swamp and onto dry ground. And Luke replies in the movie, and no, I'm not going to try to do the voice. Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? Hmm? Hmm? Okay, I'll do at least that part. Always with you what cannot be done. You know nothing I say. You must unlearn what you have learned. I think that's what James is trying to teach us. When crisis happens in our life, we depend immediately on our impulses to get through it. This usually is a combination of fear or anger or disillusion or confusion or control or disappointment or frustration or worry or despair. It's like James knew what he was talking about when he said that when what conflict can make us feel like. He says it makes us feel like we are a wave in the sea being blown and tossed by the wind. Instead, what James is challenging us to do is consider a wisdom beyond our understanding. Such a wisdom is found in God. It's God's wisdom that says peace is possible in a torrent. That a solid foundation can hold our lives together through a storm. That worry doesn't do anything to help us that light can illuminate even the darkest places of our lives, and that hope can be forged in a new way forward. As one author put it, can we enable ourselves to see and believe that the basic human conviction that bad things really do happen, and that we really do need to work against them by offering a vision of God who is at work and at great work in the suffering we are experiencing here and now? Do you believe that God knows what God is talking about? And do we believe, if we ask God for such wisdom, that God can show us and empower us to live out such wisdom in our lives? Do you know what you need as you face this crisis? 
One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is um, Jesus encounters this man, a man called Bartimaeus. And, and the story goes that Jesus was going from Jericho with his disciples and this large crowd of people. And we get the idea that Jesus is busy talking and teaching to the group. But then they're interrupted by the shouting of this blind beggar on the side of the road. And in our own day and age, we handle it much in the same way they did. When you see someone in tattered clothes who's showing off that they seem to be a lunatic, you just kind of stare straight forward and move on. In fact, the crowd that was with Jesus started to reprimand the beggar, telling him to shut up, but he only increased the volume of what he was screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And instead of ignoring the man, Jesus stops what he's doing. He comes to the man and asks, what do you want me to do for you? This is easy for the blind. And at his precise request, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. Jesus is asking you and me, what do you do for you? Will we have the faith and the courage to respond? I'm reminded of the wisdom of the great J.R.R. Tolkien in his wonderful dialogue from Gandalf the Grey. All who face such times wish it had not happened. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what we do with the time given to us. May we pivot in this crisis to not run away from pressure that is put upon us, but embrace it with perseverance. May the courage of Bartimaeus to know what to ask for inspire us to consider what we need from God right now. May the wisdom of James fill our minds to see above and beyond what we are experiencing and ahead in what God is doing through this. And may the love of God's presence fill our lives to have hope in this present journey. We close with James' words from chapter, or from chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord promised to all those who love him. Let's pray together.